My name is Tom Chick, and you are listening to the Quarter to Three Movie Podcast, where this week we're going to talk about a due date. I am here with uh, Christian Mulaski. Christian Mulaski. Why don't you just cut to the chase and call me Cindy? (laughs) Also, we have with us uh, this week, very special guest, Kelly Wand. Kelly Wand, do you have a tagline for us? I'm introducing you as a guest this week. Is that okay? Yeah, I didn't understand. I got confused. (laughs) It's not special. (laughs) It's a guest. We have a very usual guest, Kelly Wand, who's going to bring us a tagline. Kelly Wand, do you have a due date-related tagline for us this week? Yeah, um... My due date catchphrase is, why would a dog masturbate when he can blow himself? (laughs) Something worth pondering. Uh, Now, Dingus, why don't you tell us a little bit about due date before we get any spoiler-specific discussions of it. Let's let's tell people what this movie is. I like Dingus' synopses more than mine now. Especially last week when he called uh, Social Network a drama movie. I thought that was adorable. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to this. Well, I'm, I'm glad you like it, Kelly Wand. You're the only one. But this this week we're doing a comedy movie instead of a drama movie. And it's a rated R comedy movie called Due Date. And the rated R comedy movie was directed by Todd Phillips. And this uh, comedy movie tracks the exploits of an architect named Peter. <laughs> what? Played by Robert Downey Jr. Oh. Who must make it from Georgia to California for the birth of his firstborn after Peter's been put on the no-fly list. And he must make this journey with nutjob Ethan, played by Zach Galifianakis. Dingus, can you, can you tell us again the director's first name? <laughs> Todd. What's the name of the movie? <laughs> Well, Kelly Wand, why don't you explain more of that? So, Kelly Wand, why don't you break down some uh, a more spoiler-detailed synopsis for us of, of what happens in this movie, Due Date, this comedy movie that, that Dingus has just told us a little about. Oh, you mean a Due date synopsis? Rock and roll. Uh, <laughs> all right, so uh, Tony Stark's out of town in Birmingham, which Dingus <laughs> thinks is in Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> enough about him uh even though his wife's going to go into labor any second but because he's a good husband he checks in by bluetooth to tell her that he dreamt that a bear gnawed the umbilicus and that's how he knows everything's going to be okay and he goes to the airport but a lovably fat retarded dick named uh zach galifianakis almost kills him by smashing his car door off with his car and also steals his wallet but Sherlock Holmes doesn't notice it, <laughs> even though he needs to show his ID to get to baggage screening. And he doesn't notice he has Zach's weed and pipe on him, but the cops do. But they let him on the plane anyway, even though he has no ID and tons of weed. And he called the baggage screener a drug dealer. Kind of like what Mel Gibson did in RL. Um, so Zach Galifianakis wouldn't let him be in The Hangover 2. So they kicked Sherlock Holmes off the plane for Zach Galifianakis saying bomb and terrorist. And they let him go, but now he's on the no-fly list, like Dingus said. Um, And Zach Galifianakis has his dad's ashes in a coffee can and a dog in a car. And Sherlock Holmes has no money and no ID, so his wife can't Western Union to him, only to anybody else in the world, (laughs) any random stranger that he sees. But instead of any of them, 
he decides to use Zach Galifianakis, this guy almost killed him, to get the money. But Zach gives his stage name, Galifianakis, to <laughs> Kenny fucking Western Union guy. <laughs> and instead of just saying it's a stage name, his real name's on his ID, they fight him because he's got a reservation at Chili's, but he's in a wheelchair, so he wins. So they go to buy weed from Juliet Lewis, and Sherlock Holmes is going to be a father soon, so he practices by <laughs> punching a kid in the stomach. <laughs> and uh, Zach Galifianakis falls asleep driving and kills a bunch of people and shatters his dog's spine, and Sherlock Holmes' arm has to get amputated with a pen knife when Zach Galifianakis rolls a rock onto it. So uh, Sherlock Holmes spits on his dog but he feels bad because he has his other arm still, so he lets him come with him to his friend Jamie Foxx's house. And since crematory ash smells and looks exactly like coffee, <laughs> they all drink Zach's dad, but not all of them. And instead of having Jamie Foxx drive him to L.A., Sherlock Holmes decides to let Zach Galifianakis keep driving, and he's not worried about Zach Galifianakis falling asleep again because this time... Zach's baked. <laughs> so they go to Mexico by accident, and Zach disguises himself as a terrorist and steals a trailer because they'll make better time with the FBI after him. And he flips Sherlock Holmes and his broken arm over a bunch of times and kills a bunch of people. Uh, then, since they're not in a hurry, it's not like it's in the title or anything, they decide to stop at the Grand Canyon near the Mexico border. And they park so uh, Zach Galifianakis can throw the ashes into it in a beautiful CGI cloud, like from Day the Earth Stood Still, only because of a comical mix-up. It's actually coffee this time. And Zach tells uh, Sherlock Holmes he stole his wallet, which means he lost his weed on purpose at the airport, so all this other stuff would happen. But to make up for this, he shoots him in the stomach with the gun that Jamie Foxx gave them in his unlocked glove compartment. And Sherlock Holmes' wife goes into labor, but luckily they cover the next ten states in only five minutes while one of them's bleeding from a gunshot wound and the other guy's driving asleep. But um, just like happens in RL, the wife takes a shine to the fat, bearded gremlin who shot her husband. <laughs> and takes time out from her labor pains to introduce herself and lets him cut the umbilicus. And instead of going to prison for all the carnage that's been on the national news the last couple of days, Zach Galifianakis gets cameo in Two and a Half Men, even though the only good acting he can do is cry, even though he wasn't acting. You have to say, you have to say the end. Yeah, oh, no, it's not the end. Then oh. he calls them in the middle of the night while his scene's still on because Sherlock Holmes gave him his phone number and became friends with him, but Sherlock Holmes doesn't pick up because they're not really friends. The end. All right, Kelly Wong, very good. Now, now uh, I'm tempted to correct you on a few details. Yeah, me too. What? But Especially since you made hay of my Birmingham mistake. Mm. The, the wallet stuff, and I don't think he was shot in the stomach. Um, no. So, you can't put a tourniquet on somebody's stomach. I guess you could, but I don't know that it would do much good. That's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's called lap belt. Uh, but, but very well done, Kelly Wand. Uh, so, Kelly Wand, did, did you like this movie? Well, 
I masturbate during the podcast. Oh. 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 One, two. <laughs> but it's rarely consensual. Does that answer your question at all? No, it's not good. Right, Dingus, do you agree with that? That's a, some pretty harsh uh, assessment there that Kelly Wand has made. Uh, do I agree that Kelly Wand didn't like it? Yeah. Are you going to let that stand? I definitely agree that Kelly Wand did not like this movie. I disagree. I think Kelly loved it. I think Kelly oh. thought it was the funniest thing he's seen since Jennifer Schmucks. You think you're right. Yeah, mm. you might be right. Okay, you swayed me. Kelly Wand <laughs> does like it. <laughs> I did get a very strong Jennifer Schmucks vibe. Uh, yeah. Included my my uh, lack of which included my sort of assessment for whether or not it was any good uh i felt very similarly to a as i did it's a, the same and it's like not funny for the same reason like it's too loud it's like a bunch of random shit just starts happening i don't i don't remember hating dinner for schmucks as much as i hated i absolutely hated this and i don't remember feeling that way about dinner for schmucks oh i hated dinner for schmucks worse so i want to hear about this thing is why did you hate this Worse than Dinner for Schmucks. And one of the reasons I want to hear about it is because I thought they were both pretty equally by the numbers um, and just without much bite uh, and, and without much... Like they were both underwritten, and I don't think the cast did, did as, really did a good job elevating the material. I, I thought it was very much on par with Dinner for Schmucks. I liked it slightly better, so I want to know why you hated it more. I agree with Tom. You want to, you agree with him that you want to know? No. Okay. <laughs> so. I hated it more, and you know, it, it's possible that I'm forgetting my feelings about Dinner for Schmucks. Um, I hated this more because of the films I think it's cribbing from. Uh, the films I feel it's cribbing from are are a couple of films that are very near and dear to my heart, and it. Plain yeah, and it craps on them so so effectively that I, at, at some point during this film, I just crossed my arms and just thought, I can't stand you. And as it went on, I, you know, I just, I, I got to points where I just thought, I hate you. <laughs> I just hate you. Well, is, is Zach Galifianakis' character supposed to be lovable and, and unoffending and well-intentioned, like the Steve Carell character in Dinner for Schmucks was? They definitely, they end up pulling their punches and trying to make him sympathetic. I mean, that's the problem, I think, with a lot of these formula comedies, is you ridicule someone, and then at some point it has to make the jump and, and change its mind and decide, no, this person is sympathetic. We want to pull at your heartstrings. You know, we want to have a touch. But he was thing. never sympathetic. You don't think, like, the, the, the audition scene in the bathroom where he cries, you don't think you're supposed to think, oh, that poor guy, he's really got a tough life and he was attached to his father. Like, you don't think they, they started... But then he laughs at Robert Downey Jr. To... He's a terrible pet owner. That's what I hated about him. Why is he a bad pet owner? He got the little collar put on his dog and everything. He, he cared about the dog. No. Yeah, okay. He didn't drive like... He's not driving carefully if you have a dog in the car. <laughs> Okay. He, Kelly Wand, he gave his dog a real nice clam bake. Yeah, come on, Kelly Wand. I would think you would appreciate that. Uh, well, the dingus, I have not seen Planes, Trains, and Automobiles probably since it was in theaters. Uh, what makes that work that, that wasn't present here? You said, well, it took the, a, you said it crapped all over that, or maybe it's Kelly Wand. One of you uh, used defecation imagery as far as like how this well, movie. You, you like both those characters, and different things happen to them. Well, as in this, it was just this. It was like an auto. It was car related every time. 
If you needed more planes and trains. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I would say that this film is not only trying to steal from that, but also also from Midnight Run. And uh, and I'm just not going to brook that if, mm. if you can't do it properly. And it, it feels like this, as with Dinner for Schmucks, now that you guys mention it, which I didn't think of it at all. And a lot of a lot of comedies right now, but but especially this film, it, it feels like a lot of the moments are just made for something that we're going to see in a trailer and have nothing to do with the character. And in particular, that moment that Kelly Wan just referenced, where Zach Galifianakis or where Ethan Tremblay just laughs in Robert Downey Jr.'s face when he's you know talked about his dad, which doesn't seem to have anything to do with with what the character is over the course of the film. Because as Tom said, they, they back off and they make him sympathetic. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that moment just feels like, I, I, granted, I haven't seen the trailer, but it just feels like one of those moments, like um, you better check yourself before you wreck yourself, that the only reason it exists is, is to throw it into a trailer and then have that. And a of, song. Hmm? It's a whole song yeah. with his catchphrase, a rap song in it. So every, all these moments, it just constantly feels like the things that the characters do are, are manufactured for a trailer, and then we'll cut a movie together after we get an effective trailer. And that really does kind of kill it, doesn't it? Because I never got the sense yeah. that I love Jack Galifianakis, and I never got the sense that there was anything written here that, say, Will Ferrell couldn't have done. You plug any, like, funny dude in there, there, there was nothing that was distinctly Zach Galifianakis here. And, and even Robert Downey Jr., he's just the, the straight guy, and then there's the goofy guy. Uh, and Dingus, I'm so glad you mentioned Midnight Run, because even though I haven't seen that in forever, I just have a very strong sense for what those two characters were, uh, above and beyond a, an assortment of punchlines. Um, and there, there's nothing like that here. You could plug any two actors in this material, and it wouldn't matter, because there's no character there. Uh, yeah. They're just people doing gags. Um, that, and they don't seem interested. They don't seem very invested in building characters out of it. But let's talk about those gags real quick. I'm I'm curious, uh, did any of those gags work for you guys? Like, were there any of those gags that you were particularly fond of? I like it when he punched the kid in the stomach. I wanted to ask Dingus about that. I'm watching the movie, and I loved that, too. And I'm like, I wonder if Dingus is going to enjoy that. Dingus, is it funny when a kid gets punched in the stomach? No, what I wrote, what I wrote was, punching a kid in the stomach, funny. Oh, so it is funny. All right, so we no. all three agree. And what I meant was, funny. No, no. You, you just not, wrote not funny. Dingus, if I were to read your notes in the stomach, you know what? Dingus, funny. if I were to read your notes, that's not the, what that would not be my takeaway. <laughs> you got me. I think I emailed you once where I said, uh, "Hey, we're going to see such and such romantic comedy." Woohoo! And you you immediately came back to me and said, oh, "There's no exclamation point." I know you don't mean that. <laughs> oh, there wasn't an exclamation point after funny. Uh, okay, uh, yeah, good point then. You got me. Uh, it's hard to tell from how he read it. See, Kelly and I like that because you can't do that in movies these days. It was unexpected. Yeah. It was a totally it was one of the very few unpredictable things that happened in the movie. I did not expect RPG to punch a kid in the stomach right then. <laughs> and it totally took me by surprise and I missed that feeling for the rest of the movie. Yes. Nothing else took me by surprise ever. Uh, how about I so Dingus, you mentioned the uh the laughing at the dad story. Uh I I liked that moment and only because if you were to isolate that one moment, and I later went and watched the trailers, and sure enough, there's one trailer that starts out showing that pretty much that whole scene. 
Uh, I've seen it. Spoiled it. See, I, oh, it, does, it does show that. Yes, but if you don't watch trailers, Kelly Wan, you might have enjoyed it more like I did. Like, no, I like I'm going to punch them. They, they, they get marks off for showing me that. You shouldn't have watched suffer it. And they suffer. What am I? I got to get up. What? I got to get up because they're showing me their promotional thing. You got to do what Dingus and I do. Close your eyes. Put your fingers in your ears. Refuse. No, they're to just to make a trailer. No. Well, here's the thing, because I liked that moment. Like, if you're going to write a story about a character, and unfortunately that's not, this is not what Due Date was, but if you want to tell a story about an inappropriate person, then I thought that that was a great little microcosm. That's just a great little skit right there, is these two guys talking about their fathers, one of whom has this heartfelt story, and the other guy just laughs and said, well, my father never would have done that. That's funny, because my father loved me. Like, just as a little standalone moment, I quite liked that. Uh, but unfortunately, there was no infrastructure built around it, so it wasn't anything more than a standalone moment, and it was just as good seeing it in the trailer as it is seeing it in the middle of the right. 90 minute assortment of gags. It was better seeing it in a trailer because when you sing in the movie, you're going, that's kind of out of character for him. Well, you say out of character, Kelly Wan, but that assumes that there's ever any character. Like, I don't, I don't exactly. think there's anything out of character because anything goes. If we want to wreck a car, turn it over, break one of the characters' arms, you know, if we want to show a car wreck that would normally be fatal and have the characters be okay, we're going to do that. If we want to shoot somebody in the leg and then drive for six hours while they bleed out, yeah, we're going to do that. If we want to have someone arrested and then have by the Mexican police and then have uh, a car chase that just sort of dissolves, we're going to do that. You know, if we want to have uh, this character insecure about the paternity of his child uh, <laughs> and just sort of hand wave that away when we feel like it, we're going to do that. You know, there are no characters here. That was resolved. I, and, and even, you know, the whole thing is that was that seemed to me like a, a really a build up for that one stupid gag, which I knew I'm, the moment it happened that, oh, God, you did that for that gag where he burst into the wrong uh, hospital room. Yeah. I mean, predictable. That's, God, so predictable. Uh, that's from Police Squad or Naked Gun. Like Frank Drebin goes in and he thinks O.J. OJ is something. <laughs> they stole that from uh, Leslie Nielsen. Well, I stole everything from this movie from another movie. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, from it's the worst Todd Phillips movie. I'm a Starsky and Hutch apologist no. as of this movie. <laughs> they steal two. I mean, a movie that has to see, steal two jokes from Meet the Parents is just, I mean, bankrupt. So what's the second? Obviously, the, the Ashes joke, because there's a great gag with... Uh, uh, the Fockers movie about the cat digging in the ashes. And, like, I loved that in Meet the Fockers. And, and I actually enjoyed the ashes gag here because I'm easily amused. Um, but what was the second one, Dingus? Well, from my point of view, just naming him Peter Hyman. I mean, that's... Uh, if you can't... If you can't, if that's names. your biggest joke, ha-ha, Peter Hyman, and then you're going to have Rosie Hyman at the end. I mean, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's, that's a Fokker joke. And you've already stolen the, the ashes. And when we got to the point... Where you know you know building on Kelly Wan's obvious observation that ashes look nothing like coffee grounds, and then we we stumble all over the ground because he knocked them onto the floor. I'm just thinking, like, really, we're doing ashes jokes, yeah. really? And then predictable you know, ashes get, jokes. Uh, ashes in a coffee can is not uh-huh. anything new. <laughs> and no, you can't take that. You can't take that from Lebowski and not do anything interesting with it. Well, has anybody ever drunk? Ashes. Like, isn't that new? Come on. That's true. I'm Come almost in. positive we have, and mm. I just don't know. We have. Okay, Dingus, you're going to have to do some research for I'm convinced, because I love that. I love that moment. Coffee. 
I, I did not see that moment coming. When it happened, I laughed, and I particularly loved, and I think this says more about how good Zach Galifianakis is than anything else. I, I, and actually, Robert Downey Jr. contributed to this. I love when they realize they're drinking the ashes, and they're sputtering and going, bleh, 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 when Zach Galifianakis picks the glass up again and drinks again to wash the taste out of his mouth, and the look he gets from Robert yeah. Downey Jr. That, that right there was a little brief bit of comedic insight that I wish we'd seen more of in, in the movie. That's true. Um, There's one good second every 45 minutes. <laughs> well, okay, here's another moment that I really liked, and I wished had been in a better movie. Um, the uh, use of Hey You during the drug sequence. The fact that they played out the whole song, they let the whole song play, they did a little music video about you know Robert Downey Jr. tripping on Vicodin and weed or, or whatever. Uh, I enjoyed that sequence. Will you guys give me that? Yeah, the, the, yeah. Uh, hyper, the hyperspace moment. Yeah, yeah. But I was on Percocet and weed when I watched it. So. <laughs> so that's how the whole movie looked to you. Yeah. <laughs> I liked when Galifianakis said, let me talk to her. That was I liked that moment. And the perm joke. Come on. And, and come on, Juliette Lewis. Like, I, did you yeah. guys like her? Like, I, I really like what she's... I, I, what, what did I see her in recently? She played a best friend in something else. But I, I like when she shows up. I, I, I like that. She's yeah, funny. That was fine. Too. You know, because you, you still feel like... Uh, um, Sherlock Holmes is going to be able to carry you through because you know, he says, oh, so you're not a licensed pharmacist? You know, when she's questioning him at the door and he tells her that that's BS about asking if you're really it's a, a cop. Yeah. Um, and then when he, when she asks him to watch her kids, I was just, what? <laughs> and and I don't, I don't, I can't go with either of you on the punching the kid. That's not funny. Well, we know you think so, Dingus. <laughs> That's not and, and there's there's no consequences for it whatsoever. It's just stupid. No, but then punch, the kid does some good acting. He has that traumatized look on his face afterwards. That's pretty funny. It's good acting. I, and I, I admire the technical craftsmanship that went into the punching the stomach scene. And not just the punching the stomach, the throwing of the the uh, the rubber lizard, and the later the biting with the rubber yeah. snake. I mean, that kid was suitably annoying to where, as an audience member, I felt like he deserved a punch in the stomach. Right. He wasn't a real kid. He was a character. I felt the character deserved a punch in the stomach, not the actual yeah. kid. Um, so I'm able to, to make that distinction right there. Dingus, you're blurring the line between reality and movies. But Dingus, Tom and I would have punched that, that kid. That one of our protagonists has punched a kid in the stomach. I mean, you can't well, get away on a that. dog. And that, the that's not funny either. <laughs> that was funny. That was hilarious. Come on. Seriously? It was interesting because it looked improvised. And I've also got to deal with the fact that Jamie Foxx has showed up, and I'm really, do I have to deal with you now? And, and Jamie, Jamie Foxx is all, so. your, your energy's off, man. <laughs> it's just, what the, who the? <laughs> then there's, he's, not a, uh, there's not a real character in this movie. I started playing mental games thinking, well, who could I throw in? I wish this had been a, a, a lesbian couple and Jane Lynch was here instead of Robert Downey Jr. Maybe I would be having some fun now. Uh-huh. I, I just couldn't get away from the fact that these people were doing nothing real whatsoever. And I kept thinking about the movies that I love that this movie is trying to te- steal from. And, and it was totally missing the point time and again. I hated it. Okay, Dingus, let me help you here. What about Danny McBride with reservations at Chili's? That was mildly amusing. Yeah. <laughs> but did, see, Dingus, he was a the, war the vet. Chili, the, was, Chili's, <laughs> the Chili's Iraq exchange was funny. Do you know where I was? Chili's Iraq. Uh, Danny McBride, aren't there great Chili's gags already, though, in a uh, foot fist way, I believe, uh, a Danny McBride movie? So, again, I think that that's... Uh, I, you know, I got no joy from him either, him rolling out and beating the, the hell out of him. That's the thing is, I, I, 
yeah, I'm with you, Daniel. I loved seeing him, and I was thinking, okay, good, we're going to get something funny here. And it didn't really materialize. No. It's just that this, that Todd Phillips, apparently, and I, I don't remember feeling this way in, in watching Hangover, but maybe I did, is that he has really no sense of pacing whatsoever. And very little grasp on tone. Because we get to the Juliet Lewis thing, and I understand that you guys liked it, but it's just, you just feel the pacing drop. We're sitting here, and we're just doing this whole Godfather. Oh, the whole, did you write the that? Whole uh, no, the mafia did. Ha ha. But I'm going to do the whole monologue of the Godfather. Are we going to really sit there for the whole time? It just uh, was constantly just bogging down in itself. And I guess they just didn't have enough material to make it fly. And, uh, you know, I would like to talk about what's, why this doesn't work in, in something like Planes, Trains, and Automobiles does, but I don't know that you guys really care about those two films. So, No, I asked before, and Kelly Wan gave a good answer. So what, what do you think? What, what do you think it takes? Why does Trains, Planes, and Automobiles work and this doesn't? Well, if it, when I think about the jerks, the guys, the guys who are in the Robert Downey Jr. role in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles and in Midnight Run, hmm. um, there, there's something about them. Yes, they're 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 assholes, but there's something about them that makes them vulnerable, and the and the and the idiot recognizes that in a genuine way. And there there's something about their vulnerability that the the idiot sort of keys into, and there's a reason for him to stick with them. And I didn't feel that way. I didn't. I never felt that Robert Downey Jr. having to make it to his wife's C-section, which is something you schedule and can research, right. uh, was, was as compelling as either making it home for Thanksgiving or having to get a guy across the country to get bail so that your life can be resurrected. I, I never felt that there was any sense in Robert Downey Jr.'s character of that kind of need, no matter what he was playing at. Mm-hmm. Or of that, or that, or of that essential type of vulnerability, and the one moment where we can have sort of a moment of vulnerability, where you feel it is a moment of vulnerability, the idiot just laughs at it, and it's just kicked away. And I know and that's a movie you liked, Tom, or a moment you liked, Tom. And I, I, I wanted to like it, but it just felt like this was this was your moment where we see what both characters want and how they're going to get it. Instead, it just went for something cheap. And this movie was constantly going for something cheap. Mm-hmm. And I would argue that's because there are no characters. They're, they're just gags. Yeah. You're, so. you're right. In, you're right. In Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, Steve Martin plays the jerk. But in the movie, the jerk, he plays the idiot. <laughs> you just blew my mind, Kelly Wand. Dude. Totally coming on. Also, uh, getting back to Dingus's lesbian theory... If it had been Emma Stone and Elizabeth Banks as lesbians going across the country. Oh, yeah, you had me at Emma Stone. Uh, <laughs> all right, what a, what a thankless role for Michelle. Uh, yeah, no uh, kidding. Did she just you know, do that because of Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and Robert Downey Jr. called her up? And did you? Over. I, have a, I have a point to make. Did you guys see previews for Hall Pass or No Strings Attached? We don't watch trailers. Although I did see, I, I did see. watch those, yes. But uh. Okay. Hall Pass, it's like the wife gives the husband's freedom to have an affair. For a week. And, and no strings attached, like, Aniston is getting dolled up for her dumb friend so he can get another woman. And then in this movie, Michelle Monaghan's, like, totally into... Oh, yeah, Zach Galifianakis, he's great. 
I love it when he calls in the middle of the night. And it's like, I think Catherine Heigl was right. Like, the women always get the shit end of the stick in comedies. Oh, well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, they're, they're real. I mean, she's just uh, a token. I mean, she's a MacGuffin, basically. She's the, uh, she's the <laughs> eponymous due date that we have to get to across the country for. Uh, they do absolutely nothing with her. Uh, she's completely optional. You know, given the title, it could very well be that he's got to turn in a library book. I mean, for right. all of the emotional <laughs> impact that it has here. And the funny yeah. thing is, though, Kelly Wand, I liked the first scene. You, you know, before when a movie starts, and Dingus has talked about this before, and I'm the same way. When a movie starts, it it has from me a clean slate. I am willing to give it the benefit of the doubt. Uh-huh. until it betrays my trust somehow. So early on in a movie, it's, it's invariably going to be my favorite part before a movie disappoints me. So that first scene where Robert Downey Jr. is talking to the camera about his insecurity about his son's birth, and then he turns his head and we see he's on a Bluetooth little connector, so we know that he's far away from whoever he's talking to. You know, he's not on the bed next to his wife. I like that little setup. That one little scene right there, I, I really liked as far as establishing the premise, but it just it went nowhere with it because it didn't it set up why he was so far away. But I, I totally agree with Tom. I loved that moment. It was such a lovely little reveal. Yeah. That little pillow talk, and he rolls over, and it's a Bluetooth. And it told me so much, and I just was in. I leaned forward, and I was in. I, ah, I was so excited at that moment. And then and the, the movie happened. Right. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> And and the, but you know as much as I but I I was I was that mo- that moment let me roll along for a while when when they meet on the curb when when and they have the goofy you smell a little boozy I haven't been drinking I just had a six pack of forties <laughs> I'm I'm sort of going along and then we meet right. Riza who is again my favorite part of another movie this year that was crappy and and he was great I loved him in this little role and I w- I, I hope somebody sees this guy and puts him in something substantial because I think that guy's got real talent and I, I loved him. He was funny. He was understated. It was a ridiculous part, but it, it sort of carried along. And then we get on the plane and, and just falls apart. What else was he in? Dingus? what did we see RZA in? Uh, he was in Repo Man and he played, um, was he the musician? Yeah, he was the musician. And wow. I really, I really loved him in that. Wow. And I don't know a lot about him. I've never seen I haven't seen him in I I can't say that I've seen him in other things. I mean I know his music a little bit. But I haven't say I, I've seen him in other things other than these two things. But he's just genuine. He's got a great timing. He's a funny guy and I could see him carrying a movie. Or at least helping carry a movie. Right, right. Wow, good catch. All right. I think it sure like that two lines the guy had in the movie. <laughs> Well, the thing is, like, uh, when you when you get to a, a TSA scene like that, I mean, that, again, talk about something that's been done to death. Uh, I, I, I think anybody who can just sort of relax into the material and be personable with it uh, is doing a great job. And so I'm, I'm with Dingus. Like, I didn't he didn't stand out for me because I didn't notice that he was I, I didn't know who he was and I didn't remember him from Repo Man. But now that Dingus mentions that, uh, I, I agree. Good job. Well, when he when he does that line, I've been called a lot of things, but inappropriate. That's that's some fucked up shit, yo. I loved that. Well, and it cuts out too quickly. I mean, I don't know if there was more material there, but it really did seem like a truncated scene. Uh, I don't know if they had to hurry up and get on to the, the funny, wacky stuff or, or something. But uh, That's an important scene, too, because he just found weed. No. That's the thing, yeah. If you show up, Kelly Wand, with weed 
does do you get arrested by the TSA? How does that well, how does that play out? Well, they have just to find it in just paraphernalia at that point. Ah, good point, Dingus. No, no, but then later Zach says, "Oh, my medicine's gone from that airport." So. Ah, good point, Kelly Wand. Dingus rebuttal. Uh, his wallet was not confiscated. <laughs> so see, Kelly Wand, his wallet was on the plane. And when Zach Galifianakis says, hey, I got the monkey. I saved your monkey. I didn't get your wallet. He had actually the got it. The in the monkey. <laughs> <laughs> and the heroines in the Virgin Mary. <laughs> and the baby with the baboon heart. <laughs> uh, all right. So have you guys seen... Uh, oh, rats. I should have looked up the name of it. I think it's called... The Visioneer, the, the Zach Galifianakis sort of like quasi-serious movie. No, I thought the quasi-serious one was the Mental Institute one. Uh, well, spoiler, but I haven't seen that yet. So yeah, there's another Zach Galifianakis movie out right now called. Uh, it's kind of a funny story. I have not seen that, but there's a an earlier Zach Galifianakis movie which is kind of this absurdist. Could almost be a play. Uh, uh, it's it's called Visioneers or the Visioneer or something like that. Uh, and it's got none of his, like, trademark weird humor. He's basically kind of the straight man in it. And it's not a very good movie, but it's fascinating watching him. I mean, I think that that guy's talent is undeniable. And I hate seeing it squandered in something like this. Um, so for if you if you want to be a Zach Galifianakis completionist, you need to see Visioneer. Uh, huh. Well, he's, you know... It... Now he's just playing the same guy every movie. Well, he's not. I mean, he does have legitimate talent, but you have to lay some of this at his feet. He doesn't, he doesn't go into this kind of thing blind and then get used. It's not like his talent is being squandered by somebody else. He's he's just spinning his wheels. So it's, it's Todd Phillips's fault because this was Todd Phillips's free ride movie. And free ride yeah. movie was to be the uh, exciting whack. Like you'll never get this made any other right. time. Right. Exactly. Next time to make your. Uh, when uh, when the hangover hits as big as it does, and this is how they follow up. I, I have to wonder, really? I mean, what? what? Yeah. Yeah. It's this sort of like just something crazy. Yeah. And I, I'm suspecting it's going to be like all of these, like, uh, Adam McKay, Will Ferrell collaborations now, where they just start cranking out uninspired, like, junk to, to just cash in paychecks. And I was, the least interesting free ride movie ever made. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I can't imagine Zach Galifianakis not getting bored with that, though. He, he just strikes me as the kind of person who's not going to be interested in keep doing this. And go ahead, Todd. They, you keep doing Honeymoon 2, 3, and 4. I've got other things. I'd rather do Between Two Ferns. Honeymoon. Right. Or, I'm well, sorry, they, over. <laughs> over Honeymoon. See, wow, Dingus. Yeah, That's quite the slip. I, every <laughs> slip means something. Changing Dr. Freud. <laughs> Sometimes a honeymoon's just a honeymoon. <laughs> I just um, assumed Dingus was talking about some movie I'd never heard of. Wow, okay. I think he's talking about his honeymoon. Honeymoon hangover. Okay. Well, whatever. I just think of that chicken in the hotel room. <laughs> See, that would be that all added up. And those characters were all characters in the hangover. So here's the question. Who okay. wrote The Hangover and who wrote uh, Due Date? Do we know this? Todd Due Date was written by four, four different people, including Todd Phillips. Hangover was, you're saying, Dingus? No, this one. Oh, okay. And what about Hangover? Hangover Google, was Google, 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 Google. <laughs> Todd Phillips added the baby and the tiger and the cop car. You know, I remember liking Hangover a lot more than you did, Tom. No, you didn't. I didn't? Okay, never mind. I liked it more than you. 
I don't think so. You got really mad at the naked Asian dude because you hate. Oh, that's what? right. I do. I do hate that guy. Yeah. Okay. Good point. Why he, do you hate that guy? I don't think that guy's funny. He gets way too much work for someone who's not that funny. I think. No, he was funny on a uh, Community. Uh, I've never seen Community, but I, I get the sense oh, that I get the great. sense of, and I wish I knew the guy's name, but I get the sense that this guy has a bunch of influential friends who think he's really funny, and they keep casting him in these little parts. Uh, and I just I don't, I don't find him funny at all. He was the the lead king guy in Role Models. That uh, and I just that guy is just so annoying to me. Uh, mm. he's, he's a doctor. Racist. <laughs> Uh, all right, so, uh... What do you have against naked Asians, Tom? One, two, three, not only you and me, got one eighty to three, and I'm caught in between. Come one, two, three, feet apart, and I'm free, getting down with three, but eat everybody else. I'm ready to move on. Dude. What? Really? Come on. That was oh, like yeah. half an hour. I know, and it felt like three hours. Good Lord. Who has anything else to say about well, due date? <laughs> Besides, well, I'm, nothing. But uh, screwed. Yeah, right. Forget due date. I'm looking forward to. We got a meaty three by three. We do. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I know Dingus thought I was going to hate it. It's better than that. Yeah, it shows how much he knows. You know, Dingus, Dingus thought what? You thought I was going to hate it. You what like, did you say, Tom? You thought I was going to hate it. I hate like, it. Oh, it's it's so mushy. I, that's how you characterized it, Dingus. It's mushy. It's hard. Or squishy or something like that. I was afraid uh, Kelly would just think it was too hard, too much work. He might. Well, let's find out. Dingus, why don't you tell us what it is? What is this week's 3 by 3 This is your three best, uh, or what I put last week, is your most sincere uses of religion by a character in a movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Okay, good. What? what? <laughs> I'm sorry. What was... I meant three movies you like. Did you, you just like. say the word sincere? He was very clear about that last week, uh, is that he was looking for, for moments... But of, he didn't say it just now, did he? Yeah. Oh, okay. I wasn't listening. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so since I'm doing next week's 3x3, three three, I'm going to start us out. Uh, now, Dingus, why did you... What were your misgivings about it? You said you, you thought I would think it was squishy or mushy or what? What? Do you remember what your misgivings were? What were his givings is my question. <laughs> Explain yourself, Dingus. Uh, in the past, yeah. I, I, I used the word effective when I was talking about uh, a 3 by 3 and you raked me over the coals for it because it was mushy and uh, you couldn't uh, <laughs> suss out a meaning from the word effective. And so I was basically just sort of giving you grief about that. Well, sincerity is such a great way to couch this topic because religion, as it's treated by Hollywood, is so often some sort of glib. It, it's rarely sincere. Uh, and I think people with our backgrounds, Dingus, sort of, can appreciate or recognize when there's a, a sincere portrayal of it. Kelly Wand, I don't know what kind of background you come from. You, you strike me as a guy who was raised by hippies. Am I close? I got really into the Bible when I was 10 because there was a lot of bloodshed and war in it. Ah. That was cool. Like the Greek got like, yeah, man. God. There's only, and there's, it's just a really violent text. And I was drawn into that. But then I went to church and I went, oh, fuck that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I go ahead, Kelly. I, I get annoyed when religious people get mad when their religion gets in like someone offends them, but they never get offended from other people trashing other religions. Like the Jews never get mad when Catholicism's under attack. Mm-hmm. They never defend each other. Boo! <laughs> religious people cool. should stick religious together. People. Yeah. <laughs> 
It's all the same thing. Well, I, I love this topic, Dingus, and I especially appreciate that you used the word sincerity because I think that's going to be key to, at least for me, it's going to be key to, to what examples I highlighted. And this also is going to let me talk about, I, I have far more than three I could use. It was difficult to, to narrow it down to three, but I've got a bunch of runners up. Uh, so, and Dingus, you took one movie off the table. Why don't you tell us what it is and why you took it off the table? I believe I took the mission off the table. Hmm. Uh, Mainly because Kelly Wand and I had a disagreement about it, and that disagreement was what led me to decide to bring this topic to the fore. I'd, I'd actually written this topic up and had it on deck for a while, and it kept getting superseded. And then when, when I found out that Kelly Wand couldn't stand the movie The Mission, uh, I decided that, well, I want to bring this topic up. And I like uh, the part where he's dragging uh, all that cookware up the hill. I like that. <laughs> That's his penance. <laughs> and so I, I took it off the table because there were there was another movie I was going to take off the table because I thought it would be too easy, uh, and I didn't end up doing that. But uh, but I'll talk about that later. Now, did you rewatch the mission? By the way, indeed I did. Ah, and well, since it's off the table, tell us how it held up. Um, maybe. Well, maybe I should talk about it when we do runners up. Okay, good. When he does his number one. All right, well, I get to go first because I'm doing next week's. So before I, I launch into mine, I just want to talk a little bit about what my uh, little added criteria was. Uh, Dingus, you said, uh, you know, you used the word religion, but I think you had a disclaimer about if you want to just make it about spirituality, you can do that as well. Uh, so I, I did not do that. I, I want to specify that all of my things are about religious traditions and specifically communities. Uh, there are a lot of movies uh, about a person's own spiritual beliefs and his morality and, and whatever crisis of faith he or she is having. It's a very common movie theme, sometimes in religious traditions, sometimes not in that context. So for me, all of my picks had to do with the community of a religious tradition, because to me, that's an important part of what a religion is. You know, a religion is a way that people are connected to each other in a way that they tell each other that they matter in the universe, that, that God somehow loves them. Um, so this led to, uh, like, for instance, one of my favorite movies, my, my actually, actually my favorite movie of last year, was very much about one man's religious struggle. Uh, but that's off the table because I wanted to talk more about communities. Mm-hmm. So that said, my number three... Uh, and also, by the way, uh, Dingus, I think you specified you wanted us to mention specific moments, correct? Yes, I did. Okay. So all three of mine are specific moments. Uh, I went through movies. and So my number three uh, is from the movie Matewan. Now, uh, it's a John Sayles mm. movie about uh, uh, miners trying to organize for unionization in the 1920s in West Virginia. Uh, have you guys seen Matewan? Yeah, yeah, it's great. Okay. John Sayles, right? And it's fantastic. It's, it's vintage John Sayles. Uh, it's got a fantastic cast. The script, it touches on so many different things, uh, from, from racial issues to issues of social justice. Uh, you know, it's not just about striking coal miners, uh, to community. Uh, and, and there's a church in this movie. Uh, and John Sayles actually plays the, the pastor of this church. And in the movie, it looks like the church is going to be under John Sayles' pastorship. You know, it shows that he's very sympathetic to the coal miners' companies. He's very anti-union. Uh, the movie touches on uh, fear of, of, of communism somewhat. And I think there's even a, a part where he's delivering a sermon, writing off the union members as communists. Uh, so you think right away, okay, this movie is going to be 
You know, the church is going to be in cahoots with the corrupt power structure, and that's going to be the portrayal of religion in this community. And, that, and that's how the movie goes for, for most of the ways. But there's a character, a young character named Danny, who's played by an actor named Will Oldham. Uh, and Will Oldham, Dingus, you and I have seen him recently, and I was really surprised to find this, uh, in a movie called Old Joy. He's the weird bearded friend in that movie. And he was a 17-year-old kid in Matewan playing the young uh, like understudy pastor in this church. Holy cow! I know I couldn't believe that. Uh, but but going back and looking at uh, like it definitely you can definitely see it uh, when you go back and look at Matewan. It's like yeah, sure enough, it's that guy. So but I thought that was some, just somebody they found. No, I mean, well, Will Oldham actually has a, a background in like folk music. Uh, so I wouldn't be surprised if he was just like some West Virginia folk musician who John Sayles cast, and he, uh, actually this is the case, he, he later moved to Hollywood in the 80s and, and tried to work as an actor, and eventually just went over into folk music, and Kelly Reichardt cast him in Old Joy uh, at, at some point. Um, so in Matewan, so here you have the church is, is uh, in league with uh, the coal mining companies. So in Matewan, uh, Chris Cooper comes to town, and he's uh, an organizer for the unions. And the movie basically follows him. He's the lead character as he's trying to get the coal miners together to strike. Uh, and at some point in the movie, uh, detectives come in, on, uh, rep- uh, hired by the coal companies, uh, and try to bust up what he's doing. And in the, in the context of this struggle, they frame Chris Cooper uh, for, uh, they, they get a, a woman to, to say that, she, that he raped her. They, they frame him in these false charges of rape, uh, and they basically discredit him doing this. And this young pastor... Danny, played by Will Oldham, finds out what they're doing. He, he finds out, you know, he discovers that this is going on, and the detectives catch him, and they say, you know, we're going to keep our eye on you. If you do anything to reveal us or, or to, to help Chris Cooper, we're going we're to kill you, just like we killed your friend, which they do in the movie. So here we have this character who's a young pastor in a church who can't say anything about what's going on, and he knows that a man is being wrongly accused of rape. So my favorite scene, in Matewan, there's a scene where he gets up and he gives a sermon about Potiphar's wife wrongly accusing Joseph of rape. And by telling this story to the, the, uh, to the congregation, he reveals what has actually happened to Chris Cooper's character, that he was wrongly accused of rape. And I love how John Sayles portrays religion in this movie both as something that can help a corrupt power structure, and something that can subvert it. Uh, and I just love that sermon scene where this kid discovers, you know, he wants religion to be a force for social justice, and he tells a story, you know, a parable, mm-hmm. a metaphor to subvert that. Uh, mm-hmm. So there's my number three. It turns the crowd. It does, it? yep, yep, it's it does. a major plot point in the movie. Yep, absolutely. absolutely. Did that really happen? I mean, Mate One's a real thing. So. No, Mate One's a real thing. So there's a huge... I think next to the Civil War, the largest armed uprising in the history of the United States eventually culminated in this struggle between uh, coal miners in West Virginia and the, and the coal companies. Uh, and Matewan is regarded as sort of the opening salvo. Because Matewan is a real event where these detectives came to town and they tried to arrest the sheriff. 
uh, and it, it, it ended up being a shootout between the detectives and the sheriff and the coal miners. Uh, and I think there were like 10 casualties or something. And from there, things got increasingly out of hand. And then there was eventually, uh, I can't remember what it was called, but there was eventually a big like multi-day standoff between, uh, between coal miners and coal company representatives. And the military was involved. And that was the biggest armed insurrection other than the Civil War in the U.S. Remember how quaint it was when workers actually revolted and... Well, these days you just smattered. <laughs> this is the Norma Ray days. Yeah. Right, right. Everyone just goes, yeah. <laughs> well, we've come a long way. Uh, you know, you, oh, yeah, you yeah, know the company. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. The system that, works way better now. That's beautiful, Tom. I, didn't, I don't remember that at all. I haven't, yeah. I haven't seen Mate One uh, probably since I was in college or high school. Oh, Matewan so holds up. I mean, uh, David Strathern is the sheriff, and certainly Chris Cooper. I mean, it's just, it's just, uh, he's so, I think it's before anybody really knew who he was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and Mary, uh, oh, what's the, what's the, Donald. yeah, 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 the Battlestar Galactica president. Uh, she's great <laughs> in it. Uh, James Earl Jones. James Earl Jones is fantastic. Kevin Ty as the evil uh, detective guy. Um, and it's, it's also, I'm going to screw up his name. Haskell Wexler? Wexler? What the heck? Yeah, you're right. Haskell Wexler, yeah. Uh, Just beautiful cinematography. I mean, he's the guy that worked with John Sayles a lot. But but Made One looks fantastic. Um, Man, that is so exciting. And it it calls to mind another movie all of a sudden that I didn't even think of. And I'm not going to mention it because I don't want to... Grief anybody, or not grief, but uh, supersede anybody's picks. On senior. probably... I'll probably want to talk about it later, but... Uh, Save it for the runners-up. Really, it's so exciting. You know, Agnes of God. And I actually did not, because it's not on instant play, I didn't get to re-watch uh, Mate 1, um, so I'm looking forward to, to seeing that again sometime soon. So, All right, so there's my number three, Mate 1. Uh, Kelly Wand, what is your number three? Most sincere uh, use of religion. This one's my least good one. <laughs> okay. Would you say it's your worst one? Except for the other two, yes. Um, In a couple weeks, will you have a better one? (laughs) He's seen red. (laughs) He just punched a kid in the stomach. He's going to spit on a dog. (laughs) It's okay, it's half-flipped. Okay, Paul, I'm going to speed talk. My number three sincere religious moment was in uh, Life of Brian when um, he bangs that chick and then he yawns naked and then he sees a crowd waiting outside his window to teach them wisdom. I totally identified with that. (laughs) So you would do full frontal nudity in front of a crowd of extras? Yeah. (laughs) Well, when I do, there they are. All right. Write us more synopses. <laughs> uh, who is the who is that actor? It's it's uh, not a usual. It's a, it's a Monty Python dude. Who's the lead actor? Is it Graham, Graham no. Chapman? It is Graham Chapman. Okay. Uh, now, what does that tell you about religion, Kelly Wan? That scene. That the people are always going to be hassling you if you say just one smart thing in your life. <laughs> They'll never leave you alone. <laughs> That's what I found, Tom. As and a result did, of this podcast. Did you guys remember? And also how, the, go ahead. Go on. Well, I was going to say, do you guys remember how controversial Life of Brian was? 
Like, I don't think it's because I lived in Arkansas, but I just remember that being like... Really? Oh, God. I, I Wasn't there a huge... Because when you see it... Um, well, a lot of it was unintentional. Like, there's, like, a part where John Cleese was wearing, like, an outfit where they're trying to stone someone, and the women are all wearing fake beards because they want to get invited to the stoning. Oh, that's right. But he's apparently... He was wearing like a, an actual. They thought it was just just a random wardrobe, but it was like an actual Jewish something or other, like something actual historical Jews would have worn. So going, oh look, he's attacking Jews. And they're all what? <laughs> yeah, and also the beards were actual Hasidic. Well, Monty Python has, if I'm not mistaken, like traditionally they don't. I mean, they, they goof around a lot, but that's kind of, uh, isn't that sort of exceptional in their comedy to sort of be goofing so specifically at Christianity? Like, they're not normally that subversive in their humor, are they? No, but a lot of it's, um, a lot of it's very silly. Like, it's even sillier than Holy Grail in a lot of ways. Which, I mean, but they, they, they took on Their religion. humor was extremely yeah. subversive. Really? I guess I just don't know enough Monty Python. Like, I just think of them as the silly walk and the dead parrot stuff. Uh, that's bait to trick you into watching Life of Brian. That's their favorite one, but our favorite one is Holy Grail, which annoys them. They're like, oh, that's not as mature. <laughs> well, well, Dingus, you, you say that, but what, what, is, like, like, what are examples of that with, with Monty Python? Well, they were, they were lampooning the church when that was just not done. Well, that's, just that's what I mean. Simple as, as the bishop running around playing soccer or football, uh, making the church look, church look silly was something that was just not done. And, you know, you can you can say you can rail against it, you can shout against it, but making something that is serious and profound look silly was serious business. And but um, but they, they did not- that out, outside of Life of Brian, you mean? Yeah, they they did okay. it in their show. They did it in the Flying Circus a lot. Okay. They do it in Holy Grail, too. There's, like, that Pope with the Holy Hand Grenade. Like, just empty rituals. But, I mean, uh, you know, they're just making fun of retarded social institutions. Like <laughs> forever. I mean, Dingus, could you do... It's just one of those. Could, could you do some uh, some dialogue from Life of... From uh, my oh. Python sketch for us, Dingus? From which sketch? Anyone. Just any Monty Python. I know you're fond of quoting them. You, you do that a lot. All right. Uh, this lizard is dead. It's totally dead. <laughs> no, it isn't. It's going to be stone cold in a minute. It's coming right back. <laughs> that's very good. A lizard. The lizard skit. <laughs> well, that's before they changed it to a parrot, because they, they focus grouped it and thought that a parrot was funnier. <laughs> The lizard, the lizard uh, community stood up against them. Dingus, now you would have been about the age. Do you, when when Life of Brian came out, uh, I think you were in, in firmly ensconced in a religious tradition. Do you remember hearing that that movie was like evil, or what? What did you know about that movie when it came out? What year did it come out? Nineteen seventy-nine, I think, or eighty seventy-nine. I'll go with. I that. I would have had no idea. Okay, I was I was insulated from that time. George Harrison. Uh, helped fund it because he wanted to see it. Oh, he was one of the Beatles. Funding. Uh, I don't know. I don't speak. I don't, I don't listen to music with <laughs> titles. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, Graham Chapman emerging before the crowd in Life of Brian. That's your number three, Kelly Wand. There's a lot of good moments in Life of Brian. you got to pick one. 
Well, that's the one. Okay, the, then I'd go with the where they pick up his sandal and consider it a religious relic. That sums it all up. Grand Chapman's sandal in Life of Brian. Okay, I've got you down for that. All right. And they argue about what it means. Like, what's the sign he gave us? Why this sandal? And the strap's broken. We have to break our straps. I remember... Yeah. I, I remember really enjoying uh, the scene where they mishear lyrics, for, or not lyrics, uh, the words from the Sermon on the Mount, where they're mishearing, you know, blessed are the cheesemakers, and the, the, the Greeks shall inherit the earth. They already own half of the bloody thing. Like, I, I remember really enjoying that part. Uh, so can you pick that instead, Kelly Wand? Can I convince you? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good scene, too, because it's... That probably really happened. Well, probably. it's really about, I mean, as, as a student of, of biblical studies, it really is kind of like an early instance of how religious traditions morph over time. You know, the guys at the back of the yeah. audience hear something very different than the guys in the front of the audience, and that's kind of how religion gets passed down. We, here we are 2,000 years later, we're in the back of the audience from whatever Jesus was teaching back then. Right. So we're hearing things like the Greeks shall inherit the earth. And maybe it was the opposite. It was like maybe he was a maniac and he was saying, blessed are the cheesemakers, and, and it, we improved it by mishearing it. Hmm. That's what's happening. That's pretty subversive, Kelly Wand. Tom, what do you think of those Gnostic scrolls where Judas is the uh, friend? Uh, I think they're Gnostic. <laughs> Zunite. <laughs> All right, Dingus, what is your number three uh, most sincere? And by the way, Kelly, was that a sincere question? I don't know. I mean, I, there's a whole Gnostic tradition. A lot of it is New Age BS, and, and I think it's goofy. Um, mm-hmm. But but some of it. Well, Gnosticism was a real tradition. I mean, there there was a real tradition of various cults and sects from that time. And and some of their teachings are, you could make the argument, as legitimate as what's been passed down to us. But what's been passed down to us, you know, that that all has to do with how traditions are shaped. Basically, who wins the church wars over time? Mm -hmm. You know, the traditions of Jesus aren't really... You know, they go through Paul, they go through the early church, they go through the Roman Empire, they go through the Dark Ages. Right. Uh, so all of that stuff. And, and you can go back and find all kinds of interesting branches that split yeah. off from that. Um, so I just find that process fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Like to see the original, I don't know. And right. there's, there's so many original things, though. I mean, what, the process that's interesting to me is the editing that went on. Right. What was mm-hmm. selected. Because there's other things, there's so many other things that were said and were written down, and these are the mm-hmm. things we have. Because somebody decided this, not this. Yep. And, and the funny thing is, not many people under know that. Like, like, if you were to tell people that nobody who wrote a word of the New Testament had ever even met Jesus, right. most people don't know that and, and kind of resist that. But that's... In, in as much as you can determine any factual history of a text, I mean, that's the reality of the New Testament, of the, of the, the Bible, is that none of those people who wrote it had any direct interaction with, with, with this man, Jesus, this rabbi. Uh, and that's surprising to a lot of people, because yeah. that's not really that, that's not something that, that, that's part of a lot of religious traditions, is that editing process. I think they'd be surprised to find out it wasn't originally published in English. <laughs> Wait a minute. Hold on, Kelly Wand. You've gone too far. 
If you That's say he's not blonde and blue-eyed, I'm going to leave this podcast. I'm going to walk out. Well, before uh, Kelly Wan brings the whole church down, uh, Dingus, what is your number three most sincere use of, of religion? I, I really like that uh, Tom's stipulation about communities, and uh, I am excited to hear where he goes with that. That's not what I did. Uh, mine were much more about relationships. And uh, so my moments, for the most part, deal with with how religion informs relationships or or the relationship, the personal relationship with God and and how that works in your relationship with other people. Uh, that, that's really where I was going or where, where I ended up going uh, in, in a, one case, at least surprising in a surprising way to me. So for, for number three, uh, and I'm not going to do uh, the quote guessing game because I don't want to ruin. I don't want I don't want us throwing out. It'd be sacrilegious. <laughs> it would be sacrotopicus because I don't want to throw out a bunch of titles at this point. So the, the my number three is is a film from uh, 2006 called The Painted Veil, which was directed by uh, one John Curran, which we've talked about before. And the, the moment that I'm talking about is when, uh, fairly late in the film, when Mother Superior, who's played by Diana Rigg, all people, and wonderfully so, uh, is, is talking to uh, Naomi, Naomi Watts about her relationship with with God, and this is this is one of the only times I remember a nun describing, or the, the relationship of a nun being married to God, being described in the way that it is described here. And it's just a lovely description of her relationship with God as a way of teaching this woman to go to her husband. The, the movie is is very much about an, an estranged couple learning to love each other a couple whose marriage starts in rocky terms and they've never they they don't start off as an intimate couple starts off and then they become over the course of the movie they become a couple they become a married couple and the the mother superior is telling her to go to her husband and she's she's talking about her relationship with god and and she's saying what she she She's, she structures it. The mother superior structures her talk in the way that you would, t- uh, in the way an older woman would talk about her marriage to her, her to her human husband. She says, I, "I fell in love when I was 17 with God," and then she talks about how their relationship has moved on to become one of uh, indifference in the way that this happens to an old couple sitting on the couch who don't ever consider each other or talk to each other. And, and what she says is, over the years, my feelings have changed. He disappointed me, ignored me. We settled into a relationship of peaceful indifference. And then she's basically refuting what Naomi Watts has said about... Not refuting. Uh, Naomi Watts is saying, I, I'm going to, to do this because of duty. And she's teaching her about love and duty in the con- in the context of a relationship that feels like something has fallen apart or that feels like there is indifference involved. And I just loved the way this nun described her relationship with God, which is a marriage to God, in such personal and practical and realistic terms that I could understand. And I, I can't recall 
a nun character talking in that way. It was just so honest and human. And a simple accounting of what a relationship with God meant practically to the human who was in that relationship. And one of the things she says is, he knows I'll never leave. And it just sounds like such a thing a wife would say, he knows I'll never leave. But that's not said in a bitter way. It's just part of of duty and love. He mm-hmm. knows I'll never leave. There's an indifference there. He's disappointed me, but I'm I'm almost the anchor for this relationship. And she's she's speaking to a woman who has to go to her husband and who is making her marriage uh, a marriage for the first time in, in reality. And in the painted veil this is just one just one beautiful little moment. Nuns get such short shrift in movies. I mean nuns are generally a a punchline. In most Not in Orson. Ah, well, you stole my number one Kelly wand. Okay. <laughs> That's right. Nuns are uh, slasher fodder in some movies, uh, like Orphan. Um, uh, yeah, nuns do get short shrift because they're usually dudes disguised as nuns. Or Whoopi Goldberg. Right. Yeah, they're caricatures usually. They're <laughs> yeah. caricatures in their silly costumes. And this woman describing her her relationship with God as a marriage in the way that I could understand uh, just really transcended that. Good, good thing. Now that makes me want to mention something else, but I'll wait because I'm hoping someone else has picked this movie, or maybe I have. But uh, we'll we'll pick this up uh, in the the runners up. I have something I want to say about that. So, Kelly, Wand, have you seen The Painted Veil? Or do you see movies with the word veil in the title? I don't see movies with titles. Uh, my number two uh, what was my number two let me scroll up to my notes here oh my number two I just recently watched um, there's there's a movie with Jesse Eisenberg called Holy Rollers which is a, t- it's a wretched title um, and it's about uh, it's based on a true story there there were uh, in, in New York in the 90s, there was a fellow who was importing ecstasy from Amsterdam. And the way he got it through the airports was he had Orthodox Jews bring it over because nobody's going to suspect an Orthodox Jew of, of importing drugs. And Holy Rollers is kind of about that. But it's more about uh, Jesse Eisenberg plays an Orthodox Jew uh, who gets caught up in this thing. And it, it's, it's really good. I was quite surprised at it, partly because of how... It, it really shows you the world of, of Orthodox Judaism, and it doesn't explain it. I mean, there are a lot of things in the movie that I was like, what? what what's going on there? Uh, that, that are just Jewish rituals, um, and it, it doesn't have to explain it. You don't have to know the specifics of it, but it shows you this other world. And Jesse Eisenberg, by the way, after having seen Social Network and thought, yeah, he's good, but they don't really give him a lot to do, they give him a lot to do in this. There are some. This is just great Jesse Eisenberg. And his little sister, by the way, is in it. That Hallie Eisenberg chick who was in the Pepsi commercials. Like, wow, she, she grew up. Um, so in Holy Rollers... Holy Philly, cow, and the pe- those Pepsi commercials of that little girl with a perm? Uh, I don't remember if she had a perm, but yeah, Hallie Eisenberg. That's, see, b- before I knew who Jesse Eisenberg was, I knew him as, hey, this is a kid in Roger Dodger who's the older brother of the Pepsi girl. Yeah, that's... Uh, Let's see that was. So uh, now that she's grown up, she's in uh, Holy Rollers. You can see what she looks like. Uh, Kelly Wan, can you give me one of those purring noises? How old is she? I don't know if I approve. Oh, good point. No, she's got to be 18. Mm. No, she's 24, I mean. 
What? <laughs> H, H has never been a bar for Kelly Wong. I know. Suddenly he's getting all puritanical on us. Well, I guess it's the topic. Uh, well, at any rate, fairly late in Holy Rollers, uh, Jesse Eisenberg has uh, sort of strayed from, from his tradition, and he's in a hurry to get somewhere. The specifics don't matter. But there's apparently something, I don't quite understand this, in Orthodox Judaism where Orthodox Jews will stand around on the street and they will come to other Jews and say, can I pray with you? And it's, it's a mitzvah. It's like a commandment. It's something that they're supposed to do. And the first shot of the movie is Jesse Eisenberg and his friend doing this on this street corner with Orthodox Jews going back and forth saying, are you, are you Jewish? Can, can I pray with you? And the first scene shows Jesse Eisenberg, you know, his heart isn't in it. He's obviously his mind is somewhere else. And the movie takes off from there. So fairly late in the movie, when things are coming to a head, he's trying to get somewhere really quickly. And a, another Orthodox Jew comes up to him and, and performs this mitzvah to him. Uh, and it's just, and he stops and plugs into this tradition. You know, this, this one, this, in, in most movies, this would be like the magical Negro character. <laughs> but it's this one Orthodox Jew who's on the street who stops him and who offers to pray with him. And this one short exchange between them it doesn't tell you anything about what they're doing or why they're doing it. You just know it's part of the tradition. And it's been established early in the movie that this is part of what they do. And the effect it has on his character uh, is just a beautiful little moment. And it, it involves that this, it looks weird. You know, it involves putting that phylactery on your forehead, the little box. And it involves rolling up your sleeve and wrapping this cord around your arm. Um, and he, you know, he stops what he's doing and he goes through the laborious motions of doing all of this stuff, this practice ritual that this other man who's just randomly there on the street has brought to him. And that one little connection right there, I just it was a very special part in the movie that I really, really enjoyed. Uh, so, and the, the whole the movie as a whole too, for its treatment of Orthodox Judaism. I mean, it, it never sneers. It, it's it shows things that would look really goofy to most of us, um, but it does it in a very respectful way. Um, so the uh, the little phylactery ritual near the end of Holy Rollers is my number two most sincere religious moment. How did you have occasion to watch this again? I think it's on Netflix Instant View now. Uh, it's on Netflix, but I think... How did I have occasion to watch it? Uh, what you in to look it up? Oh, I, I just like Jesse Eisenberg. I knew that it, it, it had come out earlier in the year. Uh, I just knew that it was a, a movie with, with him. That was all I knew. It's a first-time director. Um, there's no one really famous in it besides Jesse Eisenberg. Uh, yeah. So there you go. Uh, is Yentl from the Old Testament? I don't even know what Yentl is. It's a Barbara Streisand movie where she disguises herself as a dude, right? No, that's Hillary Swank. <laughs> uh, I've never even seen Fiddler on the Roof. Isn't that also about Orthodox Jews? Jennifer Grey ruined her nose so she'd look less Jewish. I'm really annoyed about it. What happened to her? Oh, she got a nose job, you mean? Yeah. Is that was Jewish? her favorite. That was her... I don't know. <laughs> that was her best feature. She's an anti-Semite, see? She, she, she can't be in Hangover 2 either, then. Well, that was going to be my number one, uh, Jennifer Gray and Jennifer Gray and Dirty Dancing, but I'm taking that off my list now. So, She's in that. Isn't that Jennifer Gray? I've never I've yeah. never seen Dirty Dancing, but uh, ah. <laughs> no, she's not in that. She's in Dancing with the Stars. <laughs> Many of you guys know. 
Uh, all right, so number two. Kelly One, what is your number two uh, sincere moment of religion in a movie? Uh, I was trying to find other religions, and I crossed off the finding of Thor's hammer in Iron Man 2 <laughs> because... Uh, because it technically see. didn't happen until after the credits. Right, so exactly. Part yeah. right. It's part of the Thor movie, so I can't <laughs> have to wait. And then Clash the Titans, I just couldn't remember anything they did. And Troy, I couldn't remember. All right, so finally what I settled on was uh, the scene in Little Buddha with Keanu Reeves, the Siddhartha, where he battles his own reflection. And the guy says, uh, I'm your house, you live in me. And then Keanu Reeves goes, Lord of my own ego, you are pure illusion. You do not exist. The earth is my witness. And then he just matrixes him out, and he just disappears. First of all, I, I cannot imagine... Those words you just said, Kelly Wand, I, don't, I cannot imagine Keanu Reeves saying that dialogue. Let me, let me hear that again. Oh, Lord of my own ego, you are pure illusion. You do not exist. <laughs> you did that That's very great. well. That's that was very nice, yeah. That was good, Kelly Wand. <laughs> That's actually from Day of the Earth Stood Still, <laughs> which is my number one. Uh, oh, what is is Little Buddha? It's not Martin Scorsese, is it? Or is yeah. that Bernardo Bertolucci? What is Little Buddha? That's the Martin I Scorsese. I thought it was Bertolucci too. No, that's Seven Years in Tibet. Okay. <laughs> no, it's Kundun. No, Kundun. Oh, um, you said it wrong. Racist. Uh-huh. Can you read uh, Kundun? Well, first of all, what is? So, uh, Bernardo Bertolucci is Little Buddha, right? Or no? no. I, don't, I don't know these. I haven't seen. And Kundun is. I don't. I don't know these movies. You didn't see Little Buddha? Oh yeah, it is Bertolucci. Okay. Yeah, and, Kundun is is Kristen. And and Kundun. who who's in Kundun? In the, the actual one. Dalai Lama. Yeah. <laughs> That's not true because he can't have his picture taken because it's still right. soul. It's short round. It's Tenzin Thuthab Sarong. And Tolkal Gamyong Kunza Tenzin. Wow. <laughs> it was written by uh, Harrison Ford's wife, the chick who wrote E.T. And Hesh. Oh, no, 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 Callista Flockhart. Callista Flockhart. Callista Flockhart wrote Little Buddha? That's his ex-wife. It's he, who he was with before Ally McBeal. All right. I read somewhere he got into a bar fight while shooting... American Graffiti. Keanu Reeves? Cantina. No, uh, Han Solo. Do y'all know who the voice of E.T. was? Uh, Howie Mandel? Harry Knowles? Close. Carl, close. Closer. Deborah Winger. No. It's true. Bullshit. It's true. No. It's no. the truth. It's Don't in the mean. It's in the Bible. And by the way, it is Deborah Winger. Now, I'm not making that up. I don't... See? Whoa. Yep. She just talked to you. She told you. She showed you, you guys. Did. She reacts to Deborah Winger. Oh, anyway, my point about the line, Lord of my own ego, you are pure illusion. You do not exist. The earth is my witness. That can apply to religion. It's like a man-made framework of self-regard. Or it can apply to him not... Never mind. All right, that's my number two. You were so close. You almost made a point. He almost did. I couldn't believe it. That was going to be, yeah. It's very exciting. I was going to rejoice. No, okay, wait, wait. No, no. Then you can apply it to atheism, too. Like, 
oh, you're the you're the illusion. You don't exist. And the earth is the earth God's creation is my witness. So it's like body snatchers. You can read into it, which you will. Buddhists are weird. Buddhists are kind of freaky. You you can come up with a perfectly workable definition of religion. I mean, we can get into semantics. That's a difficult thing about talking about religion, is the whole semantics of what, what is it. Pretty much any definition you come up with, Buddhism is somehow going to break it, usually. Right. That's what's interesting about it, isn't it? It's I, enlightenment. They're, they're just a big problem. What are, the, it's, it's the ultimate navel-gazing, but it's also <laughs> letting go of your navel the same way that... Um, Mitochondria are in different areas at the same time and cells. Mm, yeah, I don't, I don't like all that Star Wars uh, retconning stuff about my. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> if I was, if I wasn't too stoned, it'd be scientific. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm fascinated. Podcast would be listenable. I am fascinated by your mitochondria uh, discussion. So. Uh. All right, uh, let's see. We have... Uh, great, Kelly. <laughs> Whatever. You suck. Uh, let's go on to Dingus's number two. Uh, Dingus, do you have a number two uh, sincere instance of the use of religion in a movie for us? I do, but I'm, the audio is starting to be weird on this. But okay, I, I'm just going to... I think that's your son. You're just hearing your son, your, your baby monitor. Okay. <laughs> uh, I, I sound okay to me. Kelly Wan sounds okay to me. Dingus, you sound great. Okay, I said good. okay content-wise or sound-wise? Uh, I'd give you a seven on one and about a six and a half on the other. Mm. Mm. <laughs> content-wise, you're, you're, you're doing great, Kelly Wan. Very nice stuff on Buddhism. Thank you for I'm not sure which of those is which. See, because he's saying it's about man's need. Okay. I, let's get into the whole uh, midichlorian make, thing. Uh, <laughs> See, now you guys know how I feel whenever you guys bring up your Star Wars stuff. <laughs> You're the theology, dude. I know, but I can't. I'm, I'm kind of out of my element with Buddhism. Sorry. You weren't out of your element with Gnosticism and Zoroastrianism. No, those are Western traditions. Those Buddhists are uh, they're trouble, I'm telling you. Gnosticism's a Western tradition? Yeah, absolutely. As opposed to West versus East, yeah. Well, Gnosticism, it's, t it's a, technically it's a term. It's just a Greek word for knowledge. I mean, it's a, it's a term for these early uh, Christian sects, uh, if I'm not mistaken. West yeah, and East are just terms, too, because it's a globe. So if you're ah, going East, you're going West. Good point. <laughs> you sound just like a Buddhist, Kelly Wand. <laughs> so before we get to Dings' number two, Kelly Wand, is Little Buddha any good? I remember liking it. Okay. But it's about like a little kid, and they think he's the Buddha. He's like, but he's like a blonde. He's like a Jake Lloyd, Good. and he's competing for Buddhism with, um, like a black kid and an Indian girl. I think he wins though, because he's the white male kid. So it's a Buddha off. Yeah, <laughs> it's like the Hunger Games, but Buddha related. <laughs> okay. There's a flashback. Did you read the Mahabharata, Tom? Did not, no. Can't say as I did. Uh, racist, racist. racist. <laughs> All right. Uh, okay. The Mahabharata? Much, much preferring the, the Scorsese film, because it felt like, I don't know that the years match up, but it did feel like the the dueling asteroid meteor films when this, ah. this came out, and I remember preferring Kundun. 
I'm not I like Kundun too. There's that. Remember that scene in Kundun where he cuts up his dad's body and feeds it to vultures because that's the tradition of funerals among Tibetans. Man, that would have made uh, due date so much better. It's like 127 hours if he'd fed the arm. Uh, why didn't we see 27 hours? Philip Glass do the do the music. For yeah, Kundun. Yeah, but then there was I... also seven years in Tibet. Stop with Bill Murray. <laughs> All right, uh, right, Dingus, save us. What is your number two uh, instance of the sincere uh, a sincere moment of religion in a movie? All right, this is a, a film I'd considered for. Uh, a previous topic but didn't get to watch for that topic and didn't get to watch for then a subsequent topic and finally got to watch it for this and and just fell in love with it again and this is this is the film Dead Men Walking uh, which is the uh, 1995 film directed and written by Tim Robbins and this is a bit unfair because uh, the character that uh, Susan Sarandon plays in this it's just, you can pick a number of moments throughout the course of this film. She does such a wonderful job of of taking this real this this real woman, Sister Helen Prejean, and and bringing her to life. and And she's just got such an an honest way of doing it that there there are at least two moments that I wanted to select for this. But I'm gonna I'm gonna choose the one that that had me just crying like an idiot at the end. And 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 it's it's the moment where um, where Matthew Ponsolet, uh, played by uh, Sean Penn, is is going, is is making his final walk, and and she is is looking at him and and says to him, "Look at me, uh, I want the last face you see in this world to be the face of love," and there's there's a there's a clear understanding in. Throughout the way this character is portrayed, but in this moment in particular, of of that moment where 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 we understand that God is love, and we understand what what that that moment of Christian religion, where where we're having a relationship with with Jesus Christ and having a relationship with God and portraying that relationship to other people as something of love and forgiveness is so clear in the connection between these two characters and it's it's like she's a conduit for god for this man she's she's led him through through this movie to take responsibility for his actions to take responsibility to himself not for anybody else necessarily but to come clean to himself and to admit to himself who is responsible for the crime that that he's committed and in doing so she's she said which a little bit of a moment before that the truth has set you free but the the moment where she says to him look at me at that last moment where they're going to do what they're going to do to you look at me because i want the last thing you see on this earth to be the face of love and i will be that for you no matter what the consequences for me in that in the room where i'm with the parents of your victims this is what I want you to see. And it's just such a sincere, beautiful moment of an understanding of a relationship between God and how God works between two human beings. Very nice, Pingus. I haven't seen that in forever. Who who directed Dead Man Walking? Tim Robbins. Tim Robbins. Oh, wow. Wow. It's, it's stunning. It's stunning to watch it again. And um, 
unexpectedly so, because I remember seeing it and being quite affected by it. But in the years that passed, I kind of looked at it as one of those broccoli films that, you know, it's an, it's an issue film. I don't really need to see it again. Uh, but it's it's so well balanced. It's and shockingly, there's there's. Uh, there's a, there's a guy named Jack Black who has a small part in it, which I didn't expect either. Oh, um, <laughs> well, he, played, he must have been because Tim Robbins used him in uh, that Bob Carter movie, I think. Bob Roberts? Bob Roberts, yes, yes, exactly. I didn't remember that. I, di- I didn't expect to see him. He's one of uh, one it's of brother. little brothers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and he's not doing any Jack Black goofing around, is he? Not at all. Not at all. And the whole film is, has that sort of level... And also, uh, Peter Sarsgaard plays has a very small, almost cameo kind of role as one of the victims. Wow! Now, Dingus, do they? Um, did, is there any caricaturing going on with the victims' parents? Like, isn't Arlie Ermy like, like? Do they? What do they do with the the parents of the victims? Like, does that get good treatment? Do you think? The the mother and the father, the Arlie Ermey part, and I forget the mother's name. She's oh, yeah, I've name. seen that woman. I can see her face in my mind, too. I, I forget her name. Yeah. It it feels like that, but but it's it's restrained enough. And the other moment I was talking about is the moment where where uh, Sue Strand goes to talk to them because she's been shamed by, by the father of the boy. He said, "You, you're, you're dealing. You haven't come to us. You haven't come to talk right, to any right. of us." And she goes and talks to Arlie Ermey, and and um, she goes to talk to the the other parents, and it, and there's this fairly ex- extensive scene where she's she's hearing from them what happened to her, and they're talking, and it's very open, and it's a lovely scene. And then at the end of the scene, you come to understand that. They they ask her, well, what 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 made you choose to switch sides to our side? And uh, she realizes that they think that the whole reason she's there is that she's decided to not be um, Sean Penn's right. spiritual counselor and to go to them. And so she has to make a choice: Am I going to come clean here? And she does. And she says that that's not the case. I'm I'm doing what I think Christ would want me to do. And and that in in somebody else's mouth, that would seem like such a clunky thing to say, but it's so beautiful. She's she's fessed up, and she's saying, "I'm I'm trying to do my best here." And they think that she's come over to their side. It works, and it, it's not over. It's not over the top. I mean, Arlie Ermey can be a little iffy uh, in at some points, but I think it works for the film. So there's not really a caricature feel to it. Okay. Well, can you think of the Church of England equivalent of Dead Man Walking? <laughs> With, with, is it Boye they were talking about? No, oh, no, I'm no. thinking of of, of uh, Longford. Longford, yeah, <laughs> Jim Broadbent. Mm. Uh, all right, good, good. Uh, Kelly Wand. Oh no, it's my turn. Okay, I'm gonna let's move to our number ones. You guys ready for this? Mm. These are our number one instances of sincerity in a movie, uh, in a moment about religion. Uh, my number one is actually my, my favorite movie about religion, and I can watch this thing over and over again. I've probably seen it like I, ten times. Uh, th- this X2. movie. Did you say what? Triple X two. X is two the heretic. X is two the heretic. Oh, I can't get enough of that. Um, uh, and I, I'm still astonished this movie got made. It is it is written by, directed by, and stars one guy. And the guy is just a powerhouse in this thing. It is a representation of evangelical Christianity 
that is just so special to me for how it, it portrays it as, as a you can you can equally see how it can be intolerant and and loving. Like I think it's so easy to demonize evangelical Christianity in movies. And Robert Duvall's The Apostle is such a, a sensitive, full fledged treatment of what that means to different people. Uh, and the structure of the movie is is you know he plays a kind of a blowhard pastor. Uh, who almost murders someone and has to go into hiding, and while he's in hiding, he founds another church. Uh, and it, it's shot in Texas and Louisiana, and he has actual pastors in the movie with him, uh, and it just shows the, 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 his charisma and how that elicits a fervor in a congregation. And his performance is just so amazing, especially considering, I don't, I'm not sure about this, but I don't think Robert Duvall necessarily comes from that tradition. Um, so my, my, my favorite moment in that, and by the way, going back and watching it, I, I didn't realize this, uh, Walton Goggins, a young Walton Goggins is in that movie. Shame. <laughs> I love that guy. Uh, Wait, that's a pretty old movie. Uh, I think 15 years old, maybe. I'm not sure exactly how old it is. Yeah, but it, at least like 15 years. Uh, but my favorite, my favorite moment in the movie, and there's a few of them. I almost picked the introduction of Robert Duvall's character, where you don't really know anything about him, and at this point he has uh, he, he's driven up upon a car wreck, and he comes up to one of the, the victims in the car wreck who's in a car, maybe bleeding to death. He's injured, and he testifies to the guy, you know, while they're waiting on the ambulance to come up. But my favorite moment, the one I end up picking, uh, Billy Bob Thornton has an appearance late in the movie where Robert Duvall has founded this small church. Um, and during a, a, a service, Billy Bob Thornton comes in and confronts him and says, you know, why don't we know your real name? You know, who are you? What do you do? I don't like this church here. Uh, and, and Robert Duvall's first, impre- first reaction to him is to say, why don't you come in and join us for the service? And it's a really ugly scene because Billy Bob Thornton then says something like to the extent of uh, the equivalent of, like, I, I'm not going to come in any service where there's niggers. Uh, and and you, you realize, okay, this is, a, you know, this is like this intolerant, racist guy. He's here to, to cause a scene. So they go to the, the lawn outside and they, <laughs> they get in fisticuffs. And Robert Duvall beats him up, and, and he leaves. And he says, I'm, I'm coming back. Uh, and then the movie goes on for a while. And later you get, there's a, a big old picnic where they're having a, 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 like a fundraiser outdoors at the church. And Billy Bob Thornton comes driving up in a bulldozer with a bunch of rednecks alongside him. And he's like, I'm going to drive over that church. I'm going to tear that church down. And Robert Duvall and the crowd sort of talks him down and ends up converting him. Uh, and it's a, a sort of a salvation scene. Uh, and it's a little goofy. It's a little heavy-handed. But it, it really highlights what that crowd dynamic is like uh, and how evangelical Christians really believe in this unconditional love and acceptance um, and how nobody is beyond redemption. Uh, and... There's this goofy stuff where they're laying Bibles around the bulldozer so it can't move away. And, and Billy Bob Thornton's like, you move that Bible, and nobody wants to touch it. So he's going to get down, and he's going to pick up the Bible and throw it out of the way. So he kneels down by the Bible to pick it up, and Robert Duvall kneels down with him and puts his hand on his back and is whispering in his ear, you know, come join us. God loves you. I love you. We all love you. Uh, we know you didn't come here to hurt us. We know you came here for a different reason. There's a voice in your heart. Open yourself to it. Um, 
and and Billy Bob Thornton starts crying and saying, "No, I'm really embarrassed." And uh, it, it's just a lovely scene for how it portrays that that you know the the feel of being in a congregation, an evangelical church like that, and, and their openness. Uh, and I can't help but think it's a little goofy that he drives up with a bulldozer. I, I can't imagine what that scene would have been like if he'd showed up with a gun. Uh, and how much sort of how it wouldn't have felt quite as over the top, um, but I love that movie and that's my number one pick. Uh, if I have to pick one scene that really shows is a sincere treatment of what religion means, what it can be like, it would be this this crowd confronting Billy Bob Thornton and the Apostle. Isn't that movie just a remake of Elmer Gantry? Not at all. Not at all. Okay. Elmer Gantry has no regard. Like, Elmer Gantry is, I think, a profoundly secular movie, if I'm not... Or, it's a book. Uh, like, Elmer Gantry, I, I think, is pretty... Isn't it pretty dismissive of religion? Like, he's just a charlatan, right? Yeah, but he's using it for good causes. I but don't he, know. In, in The Apostle, I mean, there, there's an element of Elmer Gantry in that you know, he's a he, he drinks he into the care the the charismaticness of evangelism, right? And well, and there's a certain that's aspect, and, and there's that's a fascinating aspect of, of showmanship to it. And mm-hmm. I think it's really easy to assume that it's insincere, uh, and to imagine you, you know a sort of a uh, who's the a, 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 who's the guy that was caught with the prostitute? Not Jerry Falwell, no, for Pete's sake. What's that guy? Swagger. Yeah, yeah, Jimmy Swaggart. It's really easy to sort of imagine that's behind. That's what's lurking behind all these people. Um, but the, yeah, the apostle doesn't do that at all. I mean, he's he's definitely a flawed character. Have you guys seen the movie? Have you guys seen the apostle? Oh yeah, uh, I don't think so. Well, it, I get it mixed up with uh, Rambling Rose because Robert Falls in that too, and it's like period piece. Well, it, it opens. It's not a period piece. It's contemporary uh, Texas and then Louisiana. It opens with him. Uh, discovering that his wife is having an affair and she leaves him, uh, and he, you know, there, there's an implication that he has hit her before. Um, one of the first things he does is he goes and he gets a gun and he goes to confront the guy, uh, you know, and he ends up, there's a really uncomfortable scene where he ends up going to a little league game and hitting the guy with a baseball bat and trying to drag his kids away. I mean, this guy is a jerk. Uh, there are later scenes where he goes on a date with Miranda Richardson, uh, and he's just like really uncomfortable and too forward and, uh, it's, it's not a glossing over of the character. That, it, that it doesn't sanctify him. Uh, it, it, it shows him in, it, as, as a complex guy who can be unlikable and a jerk and who can come on too strong. Um, but it also shows him as, as being a really effective pastor and, and really wanting to practice a lot of what, you know, he feels the message of Christianity is. Uh, hmm. So there you go. There's my number one. Kelly Wan, what do you got to follow up on that? Uh, just, uh, it wouldn't be a religious 3 by 3 without a little Mel Gibson. Am I right? I wanted to see this, hoping I could pick something from it, but I didn't get around to seeing it. Assuming it's what I Um. What? <laughs> you didn't see it yet? I keep Even meaning for this topic. I know, I know. You're scared of it, aren't you? I, it's the funny games of religious movies. <laughs> well, why don't you tell us what it is and what moment you picked? I'm referring to Passion of the Christ. But uh-huh. it's, Whoa, it's what? Something? Really? <laughs> well, I was I was going to go with Oh God, Book 2 and the motorcycle sidecar chase. I don't even know and what that is. 
and the fortune cookies. Um, but something that I really like about Passion of the Christ and um, something because I'm not a religious person, but something that I I like about religion that kind of makes me admire it, like the one thing I'll give it the pass on, is it lets I like it when people. I'm a big fan of like stupid courage and people <laughs> who are doomed to die, like being dignified and, and against a stupid mob. And it seems like uh, Louis the Sixteenth, when they right before they cut off his head, he said, uh, "I pardon those who occasion my death, and I pray to God that the blood you're going to shed may never be visited on France." See, that's what Jesus would do. <laughs> Passion of the Christ, he says stuff like that. He's like, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. And when the guy with Caiaphas, 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 he like, he's going, well, who do you, who do you think you are? What do you, which, what do you, what's your deal? Except he says in Aramaic, whatever that translates as. And Jesus says, if I've spoken evil, tell me what evil I have said. But if not, why do you hit me? See? See what he's saying there? <laughs> so that one, like that one line, was your favorite, or there's just several lines like that? Yeah, that line's my favorite. I see this movie, and do they? Did Jim Caviezel actually learn Aramaic? They're not actually talking Aramaic throughout the whole movie, are they? He just has to know the parts he has to say. He doesn't have. <laughs> he's saying watermelon, watermelon, watermelon. Yeah, peas and carrots, peas and carrots, peas and carrots. <laughs> See, Dolly Parton, for 9 to 5, which was my original number one, she memorized the whole script before the movie. She thought you had to do that. <laughs> so, there you go. All right, Dingus, you have a rebuttal for that? I have such a rebuttal, but you can listen to past podcasts for that <laughs> rebuttal. You don't need this one, and I don't want to grief Kelly Wand, because he's clearly sincere about this pick. I really, I really did think, you know, I should watch Passion of the Christ before we do this 3x3, three three, but I just had so many other ones that I wanted to rewatch. I rewatched The Apostle. Good Lord, I love that movie. Uh, so I, I, uh, I didn't get around to the Jesus movie, I'm afraid. Sorry, Kelly Wand. I but love glad... The Apostle, too. I haven't seen it in so many years. God, it holds up. I mean, it's shot like such a... It, it really has the feel of some 70s movie, by the way. Uh, we'll get back to yours in a minute, Kelly Wand. But the, the way The Apostle goes, like, it's so not a traditional... Conversation scene, conversation scene, conversation scene movie. I mean, there's a lot of stuff where he just lets the camera run on some pastor or on a big crowd scene with a church. Uh, it, it's so, it, it's very unconventional. Uh, and like I said, it feels like some movie from the 70s. Um, and, and Walter Goggins, <laughs> it was so weird seeing him. And all the non actors, too. There's some fantastic non actors in it. So Walt I don't, Goggins, I don't remember Waltz and Goggins at all. It's so funny. Yeah. He's the uh, the implication is that he's going to replace Robert Duvall when at the end Robert Duvall gets arrested. Uh, you, you know, he's he's a young mechanic in this town where Robert Duvall ends up, and he ends up. You know, he's he comes to the church as Robert Duvall's building it, and Robert Duvall helps him fix the cars. Uh, he gives Robert Duvall a place to stay. Um, and at the end, there, you know, he's always there in the church in the in the front seat. Uh, he, he's obviously enamored of what Robert Duvall does. And when Robert Duvall gets carried away, he gives all of his jewelry to Walton Goggins and says, you know, donate this to the church. Basically, hands it over to, to him. Um, so. 
Uh, all right, so Kelly Wan, that was uh, your number one is Passion of the Christ. Um, also Witness when... Uh, that way, whoa, 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 hold on, it's not time for runners-up. No one's going to say Witness. It's on my runners-up. Hmm. Hmm, see? Hmm. <laughs> Let's let Dingus... It could be Dingus' is number one. I don't think it is. I think I know no. what Dingus' number one is, but I'm not going to say anything. It's Dingus, what is, what is your number one? My number one is Witness when the barn... <laughs> Race. <laughs> oh yeah, that part. <laughs> because those people know how to raise a barn. Those Mennonites, I think they were. Also, uh, history of the world when he drops the. Hold on, we're not <laughs> there's a there's a great speech by the way about Mennonites in uh, Maitwan, where uh, Chris Cooper has a, where he's talking about the most courageous fighters he's ever known were uh, Mennonites who were arrested for, I presume it's World War One for passive resistance, for being conscientious objectors, uh, and how they, they were put in prison and refused to have buttons in their uniforms. So they were basically tortured, uh, and they had to chew their own buttons off for you know for their religious because they weren't allowed that, that religious tradition in, in prison, uh, and how they were the most courageous men he'd ever met. So... Also, Iceman when he jumps on a helicopter. I don't even know who that is. Uh, Except from Marvel Comics, is that your favorite superhero? You didn't see Iceman where they thaw out the caveman? In the mm, is that like Encino Man? Charles Martin Smith's in it. Rich Man's Clint Howard. Mm-mm. Ouch. Encino Man, another good one. Good work, Tom. Thank you. Yeah. All right, Dingus, what is your number one if it's not Witness? Uh, it is not Witness. And this is a, a movie I, I feel pretty ambivalently about. Um, I, I really like it, but it's a pretty uneven movie. But it has one of my favorite moments, and, and it is what inspired this, this category. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, mm-hmm. it's a film called The Night of the Hunter, and it's mm-hmm. from 1955, directed by Charles Lawton. And um, I had originally gotten this movie to rewatch it a few months ago, or a couple months ago, because I knew it had a fourth wall moment in it, and it was when we were doing the fourth wall thing. And I watched it, and it didn't really work for me for that, but the, the religious aspect really worked for me, because it has a lovely little moment at the end. Um, and, it, and I'm talking about the duet... Uh, between Robert Mitchum and uh, Lillian Gish. And the the movie has this cynical killer guy who's using religion (laughs) in a very cynical way, obviously, throughout the film. And, uh, and again, the movie's very uneven. But he, he is exposed when he's coming after the kids... Uh, at the end of Night of the Hunter, he's trying to get uh, two kids who are not his own, but he's trying to get them because they've got money. Uh, and he comes after them, and the woman who's the foster mother of all these children um, chases him off, and he says, I'll be back when it gets dark. And the the scene I'm talking about opens with him just sitting out in front of this house singing his favorite hymn. Or si- singing him. He's just he's singing, leaning, on, leaning, leaning. And the woman, the, the foster mother, played by Lillian Gish, is keeping watch over the children. She's sitting in a rocking chair with a, with a shotgun on her lap. 
as he sings. It's very menacing and, and creepy with him sitting out there. And was completely unexpected for me. And I remember the first time this happened was when she joins him in the song. And it becomes a duet between the two of them. But it's very clear for her that when she's singing, leaning on Jesus, leaning on Jesus, that it's a real sincere moment for her. That that hymn has a meaning for her. He's trying to use it to undermine them and, and to creep them out and to wear them down. And she communicates her relationship with, with God by singing with him and and thereby sort of biblically defeating him. The, the film, again, is, is uneven and weird. It's a weird movie. Beautifully shot. Gorgeous, gorgeous sense of lighting in this movie. But that little moment where she sings with him, one of my favorite little moments of religion. Good pick. Although, Dingus, you know what? I, I feel bad for Christians because they... The problem with Christ- well, one of the problems with Christianity, they get terrible music. <laughs> like watching the Apostle. I don't, I don't know. I mean, isn't they get good music? A lot of that. Uh, oh God! Stuff. All that like church choir singing stuff is uh, terrible. Rock though. Oh, are, are you saying rock? Have you heard Christian rock, Kelly Wand? Are you a big fan of that white stripe? Who are those guys? White lion? What are those guys? He loves striper. He's striper. <laughs> white stripes is something else, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah. Oh God, no. Uh, I I could. I don't. I don't know. I don't. What religious tradition does Jews? Don't Jews have good music? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, be racist. <laughs> and kiss. <laughs> no. Uh, wow. Okay. Good. Uh, Jefferson so, Airplane. Ah, that's right. That's right. Do what I did there. The old rabbis. Yeah. Jesus rocks, Tom. So did you guys almost pick anything out of Serious Man? Because I, I loved Danny's bar mitzvah in Serious Man. Yeah. I felt, if, since I'm not Jewish, I probably was missing what's really going on in the scene well enough to... Because I knew I, well, I liked it, but it just well, had to do with the character. Well, he is stoned, so there's that, but it still manages to capture this sort of otherworldly, <laughs> mystical aspect of that, that ritual. Uh, the whirlwind, too. The, the last shot's a pretty religious listen. And the opening uh, story. But that's not a moment, huh? I still don't understand that opening story. Uh, it's a Schrodinger's cat, Tom. Huh? Mm, that's the dream in the middle. Vanilla Sky was on tonight. Are there any moments of religious sincerity in Vanilla Sky? <sighs> Dingus, what were some of your runners-up? Was Witness really on there? I, I, I made a note to ask about Witness because I was thinking of religious traditions you don't normally see portrayed in movies uh, because that's one of the great things about the Apostle. So I made a note, you know, is Witness one? Uh, is there anything like that in Witness? I don't really recall. I had a, a bunch of things that I'd written up in my computer tanked this week so i'm, I'm using a mini laptop right now and i can barely hear you guys some it's a sign recording. um so witness was not on there the the only runners up i would conceivably have would be uh there's there's a little moment in the mission that i referenced earlier where where uh. jeffrey irons is is challenging robert de niro to take his pants <laughs> wait a minute hold on, uh, irons. hold on did you just say jeffrey irons, jeffrey irons. Really i'm sorry yeah. Jeremy, sorry, Blue. This is Brother Jeffrey. Lols. <laughs> How embarrassing. 
So what, what's the moment with uh, Jeremy Irons and Robert De Niro doing what? Uh, where Jeremy Irons first meets him, and he goes into his cell, and he, he challenges him to, to try to do penance. And De Niro says, what if I fail? It's, it's this wonderful little moment of, of uh, can, you, can you challenge yourself to trust God to get you through this? Mm-hmm. And it's just these two men, De Niro has given up because he's killed his brother, and uh, Iron and Jeffrey is it? Jeffrey Irons has told him <laughs> that Paul, uh, you can you can get through this, and De Niro does not believe he he can. And Jeremy Irons is essentially saying, God can get you through this. Are you man enough to trust him to do so? Uh, I'm disappointed. Neither of you brought up Meryl Streep's breakdown at the end of Doubt. Well, mm. Doubt is is the film I watched this week. That I thought was going to, that I just assumed was going to get on the list, and that I almost took off the list because it seemed too easy. Mm-hmm. And what I was shocked in watching Doubt again, and I still love it, is how Redoubt. Li- how little it seems to me to be about religion, and so much more about humans and human relationships. They're and, related, and how how little I felt about relationships with God and how much I felt about humans' relationships with each other. Hmm. Hmm. What are we talking uh, about? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm but disappointed it nobody said frailty. Just you frailty. Yeah, when, when God tells you to axe murder demons, right? Yeah. 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 Otis. Uh, but Dingus, like, don't, don't, isn't doubt, like, didn't you get the sense with doubt that uh, it, it's really about the nature of faith? And how we really can't know certain things. Like, don't don't you feel that's an important an important aspect of what it's getting at in terms of religion? When when I watched it this time, I got more of a sense of of that. What you're talking about, Tom, is being related to your relationships with other people and their relationships with other people. Okay. Um, your your faith in who you can count on and your doubt with what those people are doing that you can't trust. More than more than a sense of a relationship with God, it was an odd sensation for me. Hmm. Uh, one that I don't think you guys have seen, and uh, you need to. Uh, I almost picked. This was also way in the running because I, I loved how much I liked this movie. Uh, Max von Sydow preparing himself to murder uh, <laughs> two men in Virgin Spring. Which begins with, and I've talked about this before, it begins with him wrestling a tree to the ground. And, and from there he goes through this, these uh, religious, uh, uh, like, ablutions, and then he cleanses himself. And I think he even flagellates himself with these, these branches uh, before, uh, to, to prepare himself. You know, he, he's, a, he's a Christian, he's like a knight back from the Crusades. He's doing this to prepare himself for, for a murder that he has to commit. Uh, so I almost picked that from Virgin Spring, um, which you guys should see, by the way. I almost picked the scene from Da Vinci Code where... Oh, God. Stop. Oh, you're so fired, Kelly Wand. (laughs) Couldn't resist. Uh... Uh, okay, good. So now, Tom, you, you said you had a whole list of them. Are there others you want to bring up? Let's see. Virgin Spring, Serious Man, uh, Doubt, Dogma. (laughs) Good Lord. I've never seen Dogma. It's Um, dumb. Uh, so no, those were the main ones. I say by a whole list, I meant three and a half. 
Okay, that's cool. <laughs> More than I usually have. And, and and the thing is, these were things that I really that were really good. Like not things like like I had to really wrestle with which three do I want to pick. Um, what about the Potemus diet? I don't even know what that is. Is that a documentary? Horrifying. Uh, oh. <laughs> All right, are you guys ready for next week's 3x3? Three three? Yeah. This is an easy one. This one was inspired by Holy Rollers, which I saw. Hmm. And I'm just going to give you a tagline for, for this 3x3 for this three three before I explain it. You ready? Here's the tagline for next week's 3x3. Three three. Great movie, shame about the title. So what I want from you guys are... There, there's a disparity between, you know, when you have a really good movie that has a really bad title. And I want you guys to give me three instances of, of a huge gap between the quality of a movie and its title. So, and, and the reason I mentioned Holy Rollers is because I thought Holy Rollers was really good. And it's got an, that's an incredibly stupid name for it. It just makes no sense. I don't know why it's called that. Uh, as far as I know, it's not from a book. It just it, it it's that holy roller sounds like something that Whoopi Goldberg would be in as a nun. <laughs> it's, uh, so that's what I want from you guys: three great movies with lousy titles. Any questions? Henry Five. Uh, <laughs> Henry Five is a good yeah. title. What are you talking oh, sorry. about? Because <laughs> the thing is, I mean, you know, we have you, you know the Godfather, Citizen Kane, uh, you, you know, those. Th- there's a reason things are named that. Casablanca, you know, Toy Story. Those those make sense. Phantom Menace. Uh, that that's that predicates that you think that it's a great movie, Kelly Wand. I <laughs> you doubt. Just jumped out of the closet. <laughs> <laughs> that's where you want to go. So this will be an easy one. Uh, but let's talk next week about crappy titles for otherwise good movies. And, and by the way, this, I thought about... Well, I just want to tell you guys, I, I came across... I haven't seen the movie because I think it's really terrible, but I think it has a fantastic title. So before we go, I just want to tell you guys about what I can think of as, as one of the best movie titles for a movie that I have no desire to see. And the reason I think the title is great, it's based on a Jim Thompson story, I think. Dig this for a title. This World and Then the Fireworks. Now it's something. It's I think it's like Billy. It's a it's a movie with Billy Zane and Gina Gershon. Which I don't. I dare one of you to see it. But isn't that an awesome title? Isn't Vincent D'Onofrio in that? Maybe I don't know. I don't know. But I whatever you know. I I I hate to see it because a movie can't possibly live up to a title that good. Yeah, good point. Avatar is a good title, and then the movie happens. <sighs> wow, Avatar's not a good title. Do you really think yeah, it, it is? Oh, it's terrible. Well, it's. It- it's it sounded really mysterious when I first heard like oh Avatar hmm. must be about divine beings fighting or something. Airbender is a good thing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that could be another three by three. You know what? I shouldn't have said anything because that's another great three by three. Right. The Happening's an awesome title. Uh, you know what? It could be. There's so many. You know what? There, I don't think there's a single movie that you couldn't name The Happening. Hmm. <laughs> think of one. I dare you. Uh, Airport 75, no, wait. Yeah, see. <laughs> Back to the future, no. I love that you're trying. No. I'm so glad that you're trying. That's beautiful. I'm trying to think of a movie where nothing happens. I guess the Buñuel movie. The Street Charm of the Bourgeoisie. Take that, Tom. All right, so speaking of happenings let's go see skyline next week yeah. because i think hey. something happens i'm pretty sure that's a movie where something happens uh mm-hmm. so folks listening join us next week we will be talking about skyline we will spoil it 
we will also have a three by three. Great movies. Shame about the title. Uh, I am Tom Chick. I have been joined by Christian Mulaski. Did I get that right? Christian Mulaski? He's a great guy. Shame about his name. Christian Mulaski. Oh, so close. And Kelly Wand. Also, Jim Carrey parting the soup. Bruce Almighty. So deadly more scraping the salt in Holy Moses.